17. Around the edge of the garment atones for its cumbersome character, and its gigantic size is fully intentional. The length protects the feet and legs, the high collar warms the head, and the great width of the dihar allows it to be well wrapped about the body. The long sleeves cover the hands and preserve fingers from frostbites. Taken as a whole it is a mental discomfort but a physical good, and may be considered a necessary nuisance of winter travel in Siberia, at USD Kyotka, the last station before reaching our journey's end. We were awaited upon by a young and tidy woman in a well-kept room. It was about nine in the evening when we reached Troitskozovsk, and entered town among the large buildings formerly occupied as a frontier custom house. As there was no hotel we drove to the house of the police master, the highest official of the place. I had letters to this gentleman, but did not find him at home. His brother took us in charge and sent a soldier to direct us to a house where we could obtain lodgings. It is the custom in Siberian towns to hold a certain number of lodging places always ready for travelers. These are controlled by the police master, to whom strangers apply for quarters. Whether he will or number a man who has registered lodging rooms with the police must open them to any guest assigned him, no matter what the hour. It was ten o'clock when we reached our destined abode. We made a great deal of noise that roused a servant to admit us to the yard. The head of the household came to the door in his shirt and rubbed his eyes as if only half awake. His legs trembled with the cold while he waited for our explanations, and it was not till we were admitted that he thought of his immodest exposure. I would not wish it inferred that no one can find lodgings until provided by the police. On the contrary, it is rarely necessary to obtain them through this channel. Travelers are not numerous, and the few strangers visiting Siberia are most cordially welcomed. Officers are greeted and find homes with their fellow officers, while merchants enjoy the hospitalities of men of their class. We ordered the samovar, and being within Paradine range of China we had excellent tea. I passed the night on a sofa so narrow that I found it difficult to turn over, and fairly rolled to the floor while endeavoring to bestow myself properly. While finishing my morning toilet I received a visit from Major Boroslavsky, Master of Police, who came to acknowledge General Ditmar's letter of introduction. He tendered the hospitalities of the place, and desired me to command his services while I remained. We had two rooms with a bedstead and sofa, besides lots of chairs, mirrors, tables, and flower pots. Then we had an apartment nearly 30 feet square, that contained more chairs, tables, and flower pots. In one corner there was a huge barrel organ that enabled me to develop my musical abilities. I spent half an hour the morning after our arrival in turning out the national airs of Russia. Molostov amused himself by circulating his cap before an invisible audience and collecting imperceptible coin. While dancing to one of my liveliest airs he upset a flower pot, and the crash that followed brought our concert to a close. Two sides of the large room were entirely bordered with horticultural productions, some of them six or eight feet high. Troitskos of and Kyotka have a sort of husband and wife singleness and duality. They are about two miles apart, the former having five or six thousand inhabitants and the latter about twelve hundred. In government, business, and interest the two places are one the master of police having jurisdiction over both, and the merchants living indifferently in one or the other. Many persons familiar with the name of Kyotka never heard of the other town. It may surprise London merchants who send Shanghai telegrams via Kyotka to learn that the wires terminate at Troitskozovsk, and do not reach Kyotka at all.
The treaty which established trade between Russia and China at Kyoto provided that no one should reside there except merchants engaged in traffic. No officer could live there, nor could any person whatever beyond merchants and their employees and families remain overnight. No stone buildings except a church could be erected, and visits of strangers were to be discouraged. Kyoto was thus restricted to the business of a trading post, and the town of Troitskozovsk, two miles away was founded for the residence of the officials, outside traders, and laborers. Most of the restrictions above mentioned exist no longer, but the towns have not quite lost their old relations. There is an excellent road from one to the other, and the carriages, carts, and pedestrians constantly thronging it present a lively scene. The police master tendered his equipage and offered to escort me in making calls upon those I wished to know. Etiquette is no less rigid in Siberian towns and cities than in Moscow and St. Petersburg. One must make ceremonial visits as soon as possible after his arrival, officials being first called upon in the order of rank and civilians afterward, officers making visits don their uniforms, with epaulets and side arms, and with all their decorations blazing on their breasts. Civilians go in evening dress arranged with fastidious care. The hours for calling are between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. A responsive call may be expected within two days, and must be made with the utmost precision of costume. Arrayed for the occasion I made eight or ten visits in Kyoto and Troitskozovsk. The air was cold and the frost nipped rather severely through my thin boots as we drove back from Kyoto. After an early dinner we went to Maimeichin to visit the Sarguchi, or Chinese governor. We passed under a gateway surmounted with the double-headed eagle and were saluted by the Cossack Guard as we left the borders of the Russian Empire. Outside the gateway we traversed the neutral ground, 200 yards wide, driving toward a screen or short wall of brickwork, on which a red globe was represented. We crossed a narrow ditch and, passing behind the screen, entered a gateway into Maimeichin, the most northern city of China. Chapter XXVII from 1727 to 1860 nearly all the trade between Russia and China was transacted at Kyoto and Maimeichin. The Russians built the one and the Chinese the other, exclusively for commercial purposes. To this day no Chinese women are allowed at Maimeichin. The merchants consider themselves only sojourners, though the majority spend the best part of their lives there. Contact with Russians has evidently improved the Celestials as this little frontier city is the best arranged and cleanest in all China. After passing the gateway, the street we entered was narrow compared to our own, and had but a single carriage track. On the sidewalks were many Chinese, who stopped to look at us, or rather at me. We drove about 200 yards and turned into an enclosure, where we alighted. Near at hand were two masts like flagstaffs, gaily ornamented at the top but bearing no banners. Our halting place was near the Temple of Justice, where instruments of punishment were piled up. There were rattans and bamboos for flogging purposes by the side of yokes, collars, and fetters, carefully designed for subduing the refractory. There was a double set of stocks like those now obsolete in America, and their appearance indicated frequent use. To be cornered in these would be as unpleasant as in Harlem or Erie. From this temple we passed through a covered colonnade and entered an empty room where several officers and servants were in attendance. Here we left our overcoats and were shown to another apartment where we met the Sarguchi. His Excellency shook hands with me after the European manner. His son, a youth of sixteen, was then presented, and made the acquaintance of Major Boroslavsky, 
The Sarguchetti had a pleasing and interesting face of the true Chinese type, with no beard beyond a slight mustache, and a complexion rather paler than most of his countrymen. He wore the dress of a mandarin, with the universal long robe and a silk jacket with wide sleeves. After the ceremony of introduction was ended the Sarguchetti signed for us to be seated. He took his own place on a divan, and gave the illustrious stranger the post of honor near him. Tea and cigars were abroad, and we had a few moments of smoky silence. The room was rather bare of furniture, and the decorations on the walls were a Russian and Chinese in about equal proportion. I noticed a Russian stove in one corner and a samovar in the adjoining room. The Sarguchetti had been newly appointed, and arrived only a week before. I presume his housekeeping was not well underway. The interview was as interesting as one could expect where neither party had anything important to say to the other. We attempted conversation which expressed our delight at meeting and the goodwill of our respective countries toward each other. The talk was rather slow, as it went through many translations in passing between me and my host. Tea and smoke were of immense service in filling up the chinks. When I wished to say anything to the Sarguchetti I spoke in French to Major Boroslavsky, who sat near me. The major then addressed his period interpreter in Russian. This interpreter turned to a Mongol Chinese official at his side and spoke to him in Mongol. The latter translated into Chinese for the understanding of his chief. The replies of the Sarguchetti returned by the same route. I have a suspicion that very little of what we really said ever reached its destination. His reply to one remark of mine had no reference to what I said, and the whole conversation was a curious medley of compliments. Our words were doubtless polarized more than once in transmission. We had tea and sweetmeats, the latter in great variety. The manner of preparing tea did not please me as well as the Russian one. The Chinese boil their tea and give it a better flavor that the Russians are careful to avoid. They drink it quite strong and hot, using no milk or sugar. Out of deference to foreign tastes they brought sugar for us to use at our liking. After the tea and sweetmeats the Sarguche ordered champagne in which we drank each other's health. At the close of the interview I received invitation to dine with His Excellency two days later and witness a theatrical performance. Our dues were made in the European manner, and after leaving the Sarguchetti we visited a temple in the northern part of the town. We passed through a large yard and wound among so many courts and colonnades that I should have been sorely puzzled to find my way out alone. The public buildings of Maimeichin are not far from each other but the routes between them are difficult for one whose ideas of streets were formed in American cities. On passing the theater we were shown to groups larger than life in rooms on opposite sides of a covered colonnade. They were cut in sandstone, one representing a rearing horse which two grooms were struggling to hold. The other was the same horse walking quietly under control of one man. The figures evidently came from Greek history, and I had little doubt that they were intended to tell of Alexander and Bucephalus. I learned that the words Philip of Macedon were the literal translation of the Chinese title of the groups. How or when the Celestials heard the story of Alexander, and why they should represent it in stone, I cannot imagine. No one could tell the age and origin of these works of art. On the walls of buildings near the temple there were paintings from Chinese artists, some of them showing a creditable knowledge of perspective. John can paint very well when he chooses and anyone conversant with his skill will testify that he understands perspective. Why he does not make more use of it is a mystery that demands explanation. When we entered the temple it was sunset, and the gathering shadows rendered objects indistinct. 
from the character of the windows and the colonnades outside I suppose a dim religious light prevails there at all times. The temple contains several idols or representations of Chinese deities in figures larger than life, dressed with great skill and liberally gotten up regardless of expense. Their garments were of the finest silk, and profusely ornamented with gold, silver, and precious stones. Their word are the gods of justice, peace, war, agriculture, mechanics, love, and prosperity. The god of love had a most hideous countenance, quite in contrast to that of the gentle Cupid with whom the majority of my readers are doubtless familiar. The god of war brandished a huge sword, and reminded me of the leading tragedian of the Bowery Theatre ten years ago. The temple was crowded with idols, vases, censers, pillars, and other objects, and it was not easy for our party to move about. In the middle of the apartment there were tables supporting offerings of cooked fowls and other edibles. These articles are eaten by the attendants at the temple, but whether the worshippers know this fact or believe their gods descend to satisfy their appetites, I cannot say. To judge from what I saw the Chinese are accustomed to decorate their houses of worship at great cost. There were rich curtains and a thousand and one articles of more or less value filling the greater part of the temple. Lanterns and chandeliers displayed the skill and patience of the Chinese in manipulating metals. There were imitations of butterflies and other insects, and of delicate leaves and flowers in metal, painted or burnished in the color of the objects represented. The aggregate time consumed in the manufacture of these decorations must be thousands of years. In a suspended vase I saw one bucket which was a clever imitation of nature, with the single exception of odor. The Chinese make artificial roses containing little cups which they fill with rose water. On our return we found the gate closed, and were obliged to wait until the ponderous key was brought to open it. The officer controlling the gate made no haste and we were delayed in a crowd of Chinese men and dogs for nearly 15 minutes. It was a peculiar sensation to be shut in a Chinese town and fairly locked in. It is the custom to close the gates of Kyokta and Maimeichin and shut off all communication between sunset and sunrise. The rule is less rigidly enforced than formerly. After this introduction I visited Maimeichin almost every day until leaving for Irkutsk. Maimeichin means place of trade and the name was given by the officer who selected the site. The town is occupied by merchants, laborers, and government employees, all dwelling without families. The Sarguche is changed every three years, and it was hinted that his short term of office sufficed to give him a fortune. The houses were only one story high and plastered with black mud or cement. The streets cross at right angles, but are not very long, as the town does not measure more than half a mile in any direction. At the intersection of the principal streets there are towers two or three stories high, overlooking the town, and probably intended for use of the police. Few houses are entered directly from the street, most of them having courtyards with gateways just wide enough for a single cart or carriage. The dwelling rooms and magazines open upon the courtyards, which are provided with folding gates heavily barred at night. Apart from the public buildings the houses were pretty much alike. Every courtyard was liberally garnished with dogs of the short-nosed and wide-faced breed peculiar to China. They were generally chained and invariably made in unpleasant tumult. The dwelling rooms, kitchens, and magazines had their windows and doors upon the yards, the former being long and low with small panes of glass, talc, or oiled paper. In the magazines there were generally two apartments, one containing most of the goods, while the other was more private and only entered by strangers upon invitation. 
At the end of each room there was a divan, where the inmates slept at night or sat by day. Near the edge of the divan, was a small furnace, where a charcoal fire burned constantly. The rooms were warmed by furnaces with pipes passing beneath the divans or by Russian stoves. In every place I visited there were many employees, and I did not understand how all could be kept busy. Everything was neat and well arranged, and the Chinese appeared very particular on the subject of dust. I attempted to buy a few souvenirs of my visit, but very little was to be purchased. Few strangers come to Maymeachin, and the merchants have no inducement to keep articles rarely called for. I found they were determined to make me pay liberally. How much? I asked on picking up an article in one of their shops. She tire a ruble, four rubles was the reply. My Russian companion whispered me not to buy, and after a few moments chaffering we departed. In a neighboring shop I purchased something precisely similar for one ruble, and went away rejoicing. On exhibiting my prize at Kyotka I learned that I paid twice its real value. The Chinese merchants are frequently called scoundrels from their habit of overreaching when opportunity occurs. In some respects they are worse and in others better than the same class of men in Western nations. The practice of asking much more than they expect to receive prevails throughout their empire, and official peculation confined in certain limits is considered entirely consistent with honesty. Their cheating, if it can be called by that name, is conducted on certain established principles. A Chinese will beat about the bush, and try every plan to circumvent the man with whom he deals. But when he once makes a bargain he adheres to it unflinchingly. Among the merchants I was told that a word is as good as a bond. Their slipperiness is confined to preliminaries. China contains good and bad like other countries. But in some things its merchants rank higher than outside barbarians. When the English were at war with the Viceroy of Canton, the foreigners were driven out and compelled to leave much property with Chinese merchants. These Chinese never thought of repudiation but on the contrary made their way to Hong Kong during the blockade of the Canton River for the purpose of settling with the foreigners. Old John Bell of Antermani, who traveled to Peking in the reign of Peter the Great, in the suite of a Russian ambassador, makes the following observations on the Chinese, they are honest, and observe the strictest honor and justice in their dealings. It must, however, be acknowledged that not a few of them are much addicted to knavery and well skilled in the art of cheating. They have, indeed, found many Europeans as great proficients in that art as themselves. In the shops at Maymeachin there is no display of goods, articles being kept in closets, drawers, showcases, and on shelves, whence they are taken when called for. This arrangement suggests the propriety of the New York notice, if you don't see what you want, ask for it. Many things are kept in warehouses in other parts of the building, and brought when demanded or the merchant thinks he can effect a sale. In this way they showed me fibet sheepskins, intended for lining dressing gowns, and of the most luxurious softness, there were silks and other goods in the piece, but the asking prices were very high. I bought a few small articles, but was disappointed when I sought a respectable assortment of knickknacks. One of the merchants admired my watch and asked through my Russian friend how much it cost. I was about to say in Russian, 200 rubles, when my friend checked me. Dites an enormous pre, two mil rubles or moins, accordingly I fixed the price at two thousand rubles. Probably the Chinaman learned the real value of the watch from this exaggerated figure better than if I had spoken as I first intended. The merchants were courteous and appeared to have plenty of time at command. They brought sweetmeats, confectionery, and tea, 
In fact the latter article was always ready. They gave us crystallized sugar, resembling rock candy, for sweetening purposes, but themselves drank too without sugar or milk. They offered us pipes for smoking, and in a few instances Russian cigarettes. I found the Chinese tobacco very feeble and the pipes of limited capacity. It is doubtless owing to the weakness of their tobacco that they can smoke so continuously. The pipe is in almost constant requisition. The operator swallowing the smoke and emitting it in a double stream through his nostrils. They rarely offered us Chinese wine, as that article is repugnant to any but celestials. Sometimes they brought sherry and occasionally champagne. I was interested in studying the decorations on window screens and fans, and the various devices on the walls. The Chinese mind runs to the hideous in nearly everything fanciful, and most of its works of art abound in griffins and dragons. Even the portrait of a tiger or other wild beast is made to look worse than the most savage of his tribe. If there ever was a dog with a mouth such as the Chinese artists represent on their canines, he could walk down his own throat with very little difficulty. The language spoken in the intercourse of Russians and Chinese at Kyotka is a mongrel tongue in which Russian predominates. It is a pidgin Russian exactly analogous to the pidgin English of Shanghai, Hong Kong, and San Francisco. The Chinese at Maimei can reckon in Russian and understand the rudiments of that language very well. I observed at Maimei as at San Francisco, the tendency to add an O sound to monosyllabic consonant words. A Chinese merchant grew familiar during one of my visits, and we exchanged lingual lessons and cards. He held up a teaspoon and asked me its name. I tried him repeatedly with spoon, but he would pronounce it spoony in spite of my instructions. When I gave him a card and called it such, he pronounced it cardy. His name was Chae Ping Tong, or something of the kind, but I was no more able to speak it correctly than was he to say spoon. He wrote his name in my notebook and I wrote mine in his. Beyond the knowledge of possessing chirographic specimens of another language, neither party is wiser. Whoever has visited St. Petersburg or Moscow has doubtless seen the abacus, or calculating machine used in Russian shops. It is found throughout the empire from the German frontier to Bering Straits, not only in the hands of merchants but in many private houses. It consists of a wooden frame ordinarily a foot long and six inches wide. There are ten metal wires strung across this frame, and ten balls of wood on each wire. The Russian currency is a decimal one and by means of this machine computations are carried on with wonderful rapidity. I have seen numbers added by a boy and a machine faster than a New York bank teller could make the same reckoning. It requires long practice to become expert in its use, but when once learned it it is preferred by all merchants, whether native or foreign. I saw the same machine at Maimachin, and learned that it was invented by the Chinese. The Celestials of San Francisco employ it in precisely the same manner as their countrymen in Mongolia. Beside the Chinese dwellers in Maimachin there are many Mongol natives of the surrounding region, most of them engaged in transporting merchandise to and from the city. I saw several trains of their little two-wheeled carts bringing tea from the southward or departing with Russian merchandise, and in one visit I encountered a drove of camels on the neutral ground. Chapter XXVII I have already mentioned the prevalence of feast days, both national and personal. During my stay in Kyotka there were several of these happy occasions, and I was told they would last the entire winter. One man opened his house on his name's day, and another on that of his wife. A third received friends on the anniversary of his daughter's birth, and a fourth had a regular housewarming. 
each kept open mansion in the forenoon and greeted all who came. There was a grand dinner in the afternoon, followed by a soiree dancing and a supper at a late hour. In a population like that of Gyatka there is a weekly average of at least three feast days for the entire year. During my stay Major Boroslavsky had a morning reception on the anniversary of the death of a child, but there was naturally neither dinner nor dance after it. The dinner and dancing parties were much alike, the same company being present at all, even the servants were the same, there being a regular organization to conduct household festivities. At the first dinner I attended there were about 40 persons at table, all of the sterner sex. According to the custom among Russian merchants the ladies were by themselves in another room. Between their apartment and ours there was a large room, corresponding, as I thought, to the neutral ground between Kyotka and Maymeachin. Doors were open, and though nobody occupied the terra neutral during dinner, both parties retired to it at the end of the meal. The dinner would have been a success in St. Petersburg or Paris, how much more was it a triumph on the boundary between China and Siberia. Elegant and richly furnished apartments, expensive tableware, and a profusion of all procurable luxuries, were the attractions of the occasion. We had apples from European Russia, 3,000 miles westward, and grapes from Peking, a thousand miles to the south. There were liberal quantities of dried and preserved fruits, and the wines were abundant and excellent. Of the local productions we had many substantials, till all appetites were satisfied. According to Russian custom the host does not partake of the dinner, but is supposed to look after the welfare of his guests. At Kyotka I found this branch of etiquette carefully observed. Two or three times during the dinner the host passed around the entire table and filled each person's glass with wine. Where he found in an empty cup he urged its drainage. After we left the table tea was served, and I was fain to pronounce it the best I ever tasted. The evening entertainments for those who did not dance consisted of cards and conversation, principally the former. Tea was frequently passed around, and at regular intervals the servants brought glasses of iced champagne. The houses of the Kyotka merchants are large and well built, their construction and adornment requiring much outlay. Nearly all the buildings are of two stories and situated in large courtyards. There is a public garden, evidently quite bay and pretty in summer. The church is said to be the finest edifice of the kind in eastern Siberia. The double doors in front of the altar are of solid silver, and said to weigh 2,000 pounds at her depoise. Besides these doors I think I saw nearly a ton of silver in the various paraphernalia of the church. There were several fine paintings executed in Europe at heavy cost, and the floors, walls, and roof of the entire structure were of appropriate splendor. The church was built at the expense of the Kyotka merchants. Troelskozovsk contains some good houses, but they are not equal in luxury to those at Gyatka. Many dwellings in the former town are oven painted logs, and each town has its gastiny devere, spacious and well arranged. I visited the marketplace every morning and saw curious groups of Russians, Buryats, Mongols, and Chinese, engaged in that little commerce which makes the picturesque life of border towns. From 1727 to 1860 the Kyotka merchants enjoyed almost a monopoly of Chinese trade. Fortunes there are estimated at enormous figures, and one must be a four or five millionaire to hold respectable rank. Possibly many of these worldly possessions are exaggerated, as they generally are everywhere. The Chinese merchants of Maymeachin are also reputed wealthy, and it is quite likely that the trade was equally profitable on both sides of the neutral ground. 
money and flesh have affinities. These Russian and Chinese asters were almost invariably possessed of fair, round belly, with good capon lined. They have the spirit of genuine hospitality, and practice it toward friends and strangers alike. The Treaty of 1860, which opened Chinese ports to Russian ships, was a severe blow to Kyotka and Maimachin. Up to that time only a single cargo of tea was carried annually into Russia by water, all the rest of the herb used in the empire came by land. Unfortunately the treaty was made just after the Russian and Chinese merchants had concluded contracts in the tea districts. These contracts caused great losses when the treaty went into effect, and for a time paralyzed commerce. Kyotka still retains the tea trade of Siberia and sends large consignments to Nine Novgorod and Moscow. There is now a good percentage of profit, but the competition by way of Canton and the Baltic has destroyed the best of it. Under the old monopoly the merchants arranged high prices and did not oppose each other with quick and low sales. The Kyotka teas are far superior to those from Canton and Shanghai. They come from the best districts of China and are picked and cured with great care. There is a popular notion, which the Russians encourage, that a sea voyage injures tea, and this is cited as the reason for the character of the herb brought to England and America. I think the notion incorrect, and believe that we get no first-class teas in America because none are sent there. I bought a small package of the best tea at Kyotka and brought it to New York. When I opened it I could not perceive it had changed at all in flavor. I have not been able to find its like in American tea stores. Previous to 1850 all trade at Kyotka was in barter, tea being exchanged for Russian goods. The Russian government prohibited the export of gold and silver money, and various subterfuges were adopted to evade the law. Candlesticks, knives, idols, and other articles were made of pure gold and sold by weight. Of course the goods were of Russian manufacture. Before 1860 the importation of tea at Kyotka was about 1 million chests annually, and all of good quality and not including brick tea. The brick tea of Mongolia and northern China is made from stalks, large leaves, and refuse matter generally. This is moistened with sheep's or bullock's blood and pressed into brick-shaped cakes. When dried it is ready for transportation, and largely used by the Mongols, Buryats, Tartars, and the Siberian peasantry. In some parts of Chinese Tartary it is the principal circulating medium of the people. Large quantities are brought into Siberia, but Brikti never enters into the computation of Kyotka trade. Since 1860 the quantity of fine teas purchased at Kyotka has greatly fallen off. The importation of Brikti is undiminished, and some authorities say it has increased. None of the merchants speak any language but Russian, and most of them are firmly fixed at Kyotka. They make now and then journeys.